Today on Against the Grain, belief conjures up political fanaticism and blind religiosity, but evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes argues that belief is connected to our capacities to imagine, create, and change the world for the better. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'll discuss with him why the ability to commit passionately and wholeheartedly to an idea is a central part of what makes us human. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Our world today is fundamentally shaped by beliefs, but the hows and whys of belief are questions usually taken up by philosophers, theologians, and political writers rather than evolutionary scientists. Yet, in Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being, published by Yale University Press, Agustin Fuentes argues that belief has been a central thread in our trajectory as a species. He's professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame and has written extensively on evolution and myths about race and gender. Agustin, let's start with how you think we should conceive of belief itself. You argue that Contrary to at least one popular view, it's not about being duped into thinking something. So if that's not the case, then how do you define it? So belief is this incredible human capacity to take our sort of life experiences, uh, the input from the world around us, to combine that with our imaginations and to develop ideas, concepts, contexts that we commit to so deeply and so fully that they become our reality. And what is the connection between belief and our capacities to imagine, to create, to envision a different world and even uh, involve ourselves in, in shaping the world? Well, so think about this. This capacity for imagination is distinctively human, right? Other animals, I'm sure, have little flights of fancy and sort of push the boundaries. But for the human, right, over the course of our evolutionary history and, and just as a central feature of what makes us who we are, this ability to sort of imagine offline worlds, to see the world as more than just what we can see, touch, feel, and hear, that's an intrinsic capacity of the human. Now, that capacity, this human imagination, gives us the ability to devote ourselves to belief, right? To fall madly in love with an idea or a concept and commit to it so much that the imagination ceases being this sort of imaginary and actually becomes for us real belief. That's how belief works. Well, you just said that it is uh, something that is so absolutely human in contrast to other creatures, other species. In looking at that, the humanness of belief, uh-huh. I mean, we can distinguish ourselves from others by pointing to belief, but how crucial do you think belief is in defining us as, as humans? Well, look around the world, right? Look at it right now. Look at it 10,000 years ago. Look at it 400,000 years ago. And critical things that are distinctively human that allow us to push against the world as it pushes on us are dependent upon our ability to really commit to ideas, to possibilities, to things that probably shouldn't even be, and yet we believe that they are. That's such a critical part of the human. Our ability, and, and it's our ability to really, to really commit to possibilities and hopes and dreams and fears and terrors in ways that other organisms can't. And, and that's had a huge impact, right? There's seven and a half billion human beings on the planet and a large underpinning reason for that is our capacity to believe. It's not the only reason, but it's a major one. What is the connection between our evolutionary history and our capacity to believe? Now, that's a a big question, um, (laughs) but how do you understand it? So if you think about evolutionary histories, right, and let's just think about sort of humans, we can call what we call the genus Homo, right? This is, which is the, the group that we are. So anything in genus Homo can be called human. And the genus Homo is about two, two and a half million years old. So over the last two to two and a half million years of our evolutionary history, we can trace and track material and morphological evidence that suggests that the infrastructure for this capacity for belief was developing. By three, four, 500,000 years ago, all the pieces are in place and we start to see material evidence for examples of imagination and art 
and, and uh, things that we would call parts of belief systems. So you can see belief, think of it like our hands or our feet or our intestines, right? It's part of us and it develops over time, over evolutionary time, as it's constantly in a feedback loop with the world around us. Over that evolutionary time, this capacity has developed and been applied again and again in an ever-expanding zone uh, that is the human niche, the way we make a living in the world. Well, tell us more about that, that human niche, that question of how we have co-evolved with our environment and the role of belief in that. Can you give us some really specific examples of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let, let's go back deep in time, right? Two million years ago, our ancestors had evolved from organisms that had the ability to sort of take a rock and make some sharp edges. Um, and, and that's something very distinctive about our ancestry. It's called the hominin ancestry. But what our ancestors did was really go beyond just putting some edges, sharp edges on a rock. They began to collect stones and see inside those stones tools, right, that required two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten modifications that required learning and teaching to make. So they could see in the, inside that stone another reality, this tool. This tool they then used to process meats and bones and plants and change their kind of nutritional landscape. So two million years ago, we were already, our ancestors were already imagining new things that didn't exist in the world, creating them, and then using them to shape the world around them to alter it so that their needs were met. That's really incredible. Another example, so that was two million years ago, let's go 500,000 years ago, and, and while the, the origins of the, the control and use of fire might be a little older than that, by three, four, five hundred thousand years ago, humans everywhere are making and using fire. And think about that. Think about how that manipulates the world, not just cooking, right, and opening up a bunch of nutrients and plants and meats, but also a hardening wood or making stones easier to work. But the critical thing of fire is that it gave us warmth and the capacity to move out into new places. It allowed us to sort of push other things out of caves and other types of uh, uh, good places to live. But for me, what's really important is it actually changed the day-night cycle. So humans use fire to alter the world, to alter their capacity to interact, to work, to live. We changed from being constrained, like the rest of the world, to day-night cycles, to having light whenever we needed it. Those are two examples in deep time. There are many, many more examples in more recent times, but these are aspects of the human niche, the way that humans see the world around them, see the pressures it puts on them, push against those pressures, and by pushing, reshape the very world itself. I was struck in reading your book, Why We Believe Evolution and the Human Way of Being, of how in thinking about this deeper history and the way that belief has been so central to making us human, that you stress how connected to all of that is our enormous capacity for collective action, for sociability, for working together collaboratively. Now, obviously, there are other creatures that are social animals, but can you explain the degree to which we are fundamentally social beings and how belief ties into that sociability? Absolutely. And that's a great question. Uh, first, I want to nod to many, many other social uh, animals, many mammals, birds, and other organisms that aren't just gregarious. That is, they don't just congregate together, but they have incredibly rich, collaborative, communal social lives. Orcas, uh, uh, African hunting dogs, a huge array of primates, and many, many other species have these incredibly deep, complicated social lives. But let's put that aside for a moment. We share with them these deep, complicated social lives. But for humans, being social, being with one another is a necessary part so that we can have belief systems, so that we can manipulate the world and each other in the ways that we do, right? So if you want to really uh, mess with a human, if you want to take away a human's capacity to really work well, isolate that individual. Right. Um, that's the first thing. Now, that's common to all social mammals. Isolation is problematic. But for humans, much of what goes on in our world is influenced by the relationships with others. And so our imaginings, our internal mental representations, the patterns and processes that are necessary for belief 
are not just ours. So what's inside our head always involves other individuals. It involves language. It involves ideas. It involves histories. It involves ethical and moral landscapes. All of those things only happen in community with groups. So for humans to do what we do, to do this belief thing effectively, um, we need to be part of a group. And that infrastructure has to be there for us to do the best kinds of belief and, and actually the worst too. I don't want to say that being in a group and being a great community member can have horrible outcomes as well as all the good things I've just outlined. Sure. And it seems striking in, in looking at that early history of humans and that around that question of sociability that our capacity to care for one another is also part of how the human niche has been shaped. So whether it's caring for the young or looking after the old, that caring is part of that interesting history. I think that's really important to point out because a lot of people like to highlight the good and robust evidence, particularly in the recent times, and for me, recent is the last six to 10,000 years. In, in recent times, there's just a lot of aggression in humans, a lot of violence. There's a lot of things like warfare and, and coercion and abuse. Um, that, that is fully within humans' capacity, and humans do it a lot. But if we look at the deep time, if we look at like, what did humans really do to make it? It wasn't hitting each other over the head. Rather, it was just as you pointed out, developing this incredible capacity to care for one another, a kind of compassionate landscape, this incredible care for young uh, and the old and the infirm and the injured. We have evidence of fighting in the past. Uh, humans hit each other over the head as long as humans have been around. But we have more evidence, or at least more conclusive evidence, that it was the caring and the compassion that really translated us from an interesting group of primates to a fascinating, distinctive creature, right? I mean, think about a human baby. Think about how you get human babies. Human babies have, are completely incapable of fending for themselves. Um, they can't even grasp very long onto the mom or others. You need a group. You need, and I know that people think this saying is trite, but you need a village to raise children. You need multiple individuals, and humans have evolved the physiological, neurobiological, and behavioral capacity for kind of intense caretaking. But that caretaking is not just for kids. It's for our families, our friends, our loved ones, uh, our elderly, uh, those who are injured. That capacity, that ability, while it shows up here and there in other organisms like uh, elephants or cetaceans, for example, is ubiquitous in human societies. And that ability when the going gets tough, when real problems happen, to exhibit a kind of compassion that's off the charts is really central in the human story of success. I'm speaking with evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes. He's the author of Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let me ask you about recent human history, um, recent being the last 15,000 years. Changes happened in terms of how humans related to their environment and, and co-evolved with their environment. And those changes had significant consequences for human society and, by extension, to belief. Can you tell us about the changes that happened in this period that launched the advent of the period we, we're still living in? Yeah, I think that's really important because when we talk about human history, we have to recognize that for the majority of human history, a lot of the things that we expect of that we understand as basic human patterns and processes did not exist. Um, so things like agriculture, right, and domestic animals, things like towns, villages, cities, things like family homes, things like warfare, uh, nations, uh, economies, uh, those things didn't exist. Those things have emerged over the last, let's say, 25,000 years, but really in the last 15 to 10,000 years, we see them expand, right? So we see humans taking plants and animals and engaging in a relationship with these plants and animals uh, that change the plants and animals, but also change the humans, right? So agriculture is a, is a, it's a niche construction or it's a feedback relationship affecting everyone involved. That changed our ability to store goods, to accumulate goods. It changed our ability 
to develop and obtain nu nutrients and nutrition. It changed our landscape of diseases. All of that enabled humans to A, start stockpiling things, to start settling down, to start living more permanently in villages, which expanded uh, the number of humans, the density of humans, and complexified the relationships. So as all of this process is uh, emerging in different parts of the planet, we start to see things develop like sort of classes or ranks, certain kinds of inequality and hierarchy, um, the storing of goods, the defense of goods, the fighting over resources at a more sort of intensive group versus group level. All of these things begin to develop. And by six, seven, eight thousand years ago, we see evidence of not just what I've also systems of representation and imagination, systems of belief that are developed and created to think about these things, to justify them, to explain them. Nations, wars, inequities, religions, economies, those things all emerged in the relatively recent human history. And, and we're in the midst of all of that right now. So, so you could even say that humans are still figuring out how to do this figuring out how to do this new kind of complexity. And it just gets faster and faster and more and more complex as we go through it. So, so we're, we're probably struggling just to keep up. Well, let me ask you more about the emergence of inequality because inequality, when we obviously live in highly unequal societies now, are often taken as a given, as something natural, as something always with us. How did inequality emerge? Wow, that's a fantastic and very important question, and it has a lot to do with belief. Uh, let me point out first, though, that right now, if you look around the planet, the, the globe at this moment in 2019, um, there is more extreme inequality than probably has ever existed in the history of our species. Uh, and I think let's let's put that to the side for now, but you got to remember that. And so contemporary landscapes are, are not always, we're not always able to connect them to the past. But... Uh, going backwards, um, we see uh, in the sort of archaeological and fossil record evidence of inequality uh, in graves and in the bodies of the dead, um, but we don't see it, the kinds of inequality we think about, like some graves, some individuals having more goodies, more materials than others, or differences between males and females, or old and young, or one village and another village. We actually don't see that until fairly recently, let's say the last 20 or 30,000 years. And early on when we see that, uh, it, it doesn't pattern out the way we think. It's not males versus females, it's not wealthy versus poor. It, it's, it's a little bit more complicated, uh, or at least the patterns don't seem to fit our contemporary patterns. But let's go back even further, because most people like to argue that humans originally were this sort of egalitarian society, right, where everyone was equal. That's just not true, or at least it's a misrepresentation of what we know. When we say humans were egalitarian in the past, we don't mean that they had a complex philosophy of equity, uh, political equity and similarity. What we say is they didn't have a lot of stuff and stuff was primarily shared, not individually owned. So that's really important. As we get more stuff, as we get more humans, as we get more capacity for storage or control of stuff, that's when we start to see inequality emerge. And different systems of managing inequality can be found throughout our entire history. So people think it's natural to have one kind of economy, let's say, capitalist economy, right? A competition for goods uh, with, with certain individuals or, or corporate entities rising to the top and others dropping out to the bottom. That's not any more natural than any other system. It's just one of the many, many possibilities that we see having emerged from this initial kind of the development of inequality over the last 10 or 20,000 years. And can we make generalizations about what drove those processes of inequality when they happened? You mentioned the capacity to store, presumably the capacity to generate surpluses to store in the first yeah. place, but how, how do we understand it? I mean, I think it's really important to point out that it's really hard to get inequality when you don't have a lot of stuff. Um, you can have, as humans always had, different individuals in a group would have different sort of skills of negotiation. Certain might have been great uh, makers of stone tools. Others might have been great chefs. Others might have been great hunters. There's a whole range of stuff like that. Um, so there's obviously always been diversity in capacities and engagement in, in, in humans. 
But like you said, once we start to get more materials and those materials allow us to, let's say, create and craft food like agriculture, and we get to store things like corn or, or gourds or rice, all of a sudden, once you have a bunch of stored food, you need a system to maintain that. You need a system to watch over it, protect it from animals and maybe other people. You need a system of distribution now that we've built all this and stored it. You also need a system to sort of regulate and structure the growing, the annual cycles, the planting. All of those things don't just happen. You have to coordinate and organize them. And it's in that coordination and organization that we start to see stratification of social roles. And once you start to see stratification of social roles, you see some cases where certain individuals begin to usurp or obtain more control of materials or more control of access. And in some cases, the systems just cascade out to extreme inequality. Uh, but nothing like we have today. What we have today is, is just a new landscape for humanity. What role did the emergence of towns and cities play in the emergence of this kind of inequality? Well, what's absolutely amazing is that um, for most of human history, humans were fairly mobile. They might have stayed in one place for maybe even a couple of years at a time, but they lived in generally small groups and were mobile. Now they connected to other groups and individuals, new people, probably from many, many groups in their regions or in their larger communities. But the idea of a settled place with hundreds, if not thousands of individuals with permanent homes and sort of permanent plots of land, uh, that's, that's fairly new. And you can see how this connects to belief. Once you have that, that landscape, once you're born into that and you live into that, the way you see the world is going to be very different than if you always moved around every few years or even every few weeks or months. The world becomes fixed. The place becomes your place. This idea of property becomes very settled. And people that are not from your place and your property, your world, actually begin to look more and more different to you. So you can see how towns, villages, and eventually sort of larger cities can create these ideas of ownership, of property, of identity that are then easily transposed into opposition to other such towns, uh, villages, and cities. Now, that didn't always happen, but it can happen. And that's really fascinating. What about gender and gender equality? You've written quite a bit on gender and evolution and the assumptions that often get made about gender. To what degree did the emergence of gender inequality take place alongside of what I guess we could call class inequality? It's actually all mixed together. And so it's very interesting. And actually, this ties very specifically to belief, right? So gender, um, gender is not sex. Gender is not biology. Gender is the sort of uh, societal expectations of how particular reproductive and social roles related to sex and sexuality should be. And so gender requires belief, right? A gender system requires believing that this is the way the world is. Um, so let's set that aside for a moment. Um, if you look uh, in, in, in the past across human evolution, we don't find a lot of evidence for significant differences in behavior between males and females. There are obviously clear ones, right? Females give birth and lactate, males don't. But there's pretty good evidence that males and females cared for young and for each other. There's pretty good evidence that uh, multiple individuals were involved in, in, of course, making stone tools and sort of doing the vast majority of things for a living. Um, there might have been some differences when uh, certain groups started hunting very large game that require significant upper body strength for stabbing things at close range with spears. Um, there's, there's some evidence that we start to see some differences between males and females, uh, but not exclusively. So... If we start to look, when can we actually measure in bones and bodies different like chemical composition, different nutritional differences and behavioral differences between what we're going to classify as males and females? And that's pretty recent. Actually, it's really recent. Um, and it seems to be collect, connected clearly uh, with agriculture, with domestication, or at least with sedentism. So around the time we're starting to see other kinds of social inequality is around the same time that we start to see inequality uh, uh, in, in genders. And there's a recent really good study from the Iberian Peninsula, right, with Spain and, and Portugal, that area, over the last six, seven, eight thousand years, where a group of researchers began looking at tombs and burials and were able to show very clearly sort of this mixture, this sort of changing of, of, of inequality and structure across the landscape. And as things became more structured and more unequal, as far as goods and sort of uh, between groups and things like that, we also see the beginnings of clear 
skeletal markers of gender inequality. Doesn't mean it wasn't there before. It just means that once we start to see it in the bones, it's solidified and it becomes central. So gender inequality is tied to the sort of creation of more complex social roles and, and I guess you could call class inequality within societies. You mentioned a few minutes ago that warfare, at least as, as we understand warfare today, is a relatively recent phenomenon dating from the same period. Tell us about the emergence of warfare and how you would define warfare in comparison to the kind of violence that early humans might have inflicted on one another in more individual ways. Well, let me first give a shout out to uh, my colleagues, uh, the uh, anthropologist and archaeologist uh, Mark Kissel and Nam Kim, who have a wonderful book uh, out recently called Emerging Warfare. And it's, it's just fantastic. And it summarizes this whole everything I'm about to tell you in, in much better than I can. Um, and also uh, the anthropologist Brian Ferguson, who's written really eloquently on this. But here's the bottom line. So warfare today is the sort of coordinated collaborative inter physical and violent interactions between groups right with lethal effects that is coordinated via belief right via sort of imagination and commitment to particular symbols uh, warfare is not just about two groups who fight every now and then warfare has an infrastructure it has a belief system um, and we don't see warfare that is continuous violent lethal aggression coordinated between groups over long periods of time uh, in other organisms, not in the way we see it in humans. So belief is, is crucial to the emergence of warfare as we, we think of it. Absolutely, to get humans to band together, to risk their lives in incredibly dangerous situations, even just to get humans to regularly kill others is very, very difficult. We've got great evidence for that. Even today, armies are constantly struggling with how to make good soldiers. It's hard to make human soldiers. Now, once we do it, they can be great soldiers, but, but it's a hard thing to do. And, and belief, this ability to commit wholly and fully to the notion, for example, say that your enemy are not humans, that they're less than human, or that, that your enemy is trying to take everything that you believe, everything that you hold dear to, to your community and to your own life. If you can really believe those things, it's much easier to get into a protracted lethal conflict. So belief is required for warfare. And you know, I just want to point out, we don't see good evidence for coordinated lethal intergroup violence in humans before about 12 to 15,000 years ago. That's not to say humans didn't fight, it's not to say we ran throughout our history holding hands through daisies. It's just to say that what we call warfare now requires belief, requires incredible sort of complex social imaginations, and it requires a coordination and material elements that we just didn't have before 10 to 15,000 years ago. Evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes is my guest. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Agustin Fuentes. He's professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame and the author of a number of books, including The Creative Spark, and most recently, what we're discussing today, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. That's published by Yale University Press and at gainsthegrain.org. You can find a link to his book. So we've been talking about the evolution of belief, but you also, in Why We Believe, look at how we believe. And I wanted to ask you about that, about the neurobiological component of belief. So this is one of the most amazing things, and I think this is where most people don't understand how important belief is or how it works. Um, so basically, what you've got to recognize is that humans, all organisms are complicated, but humans have evolved particularly complex neuroanatomies that are tied to our bodies, to our society. So, so a human never lives just in her head, right? All of us are constantly tied to other humans' heads, to our histories, to our imaginations, to our beliefs. That is facilitated by an incredibly neuroplastic system. I mean, think about it. A human is born with only about 40% of brain full uh, growth, right? So, so more than half of our brain growth, which is the really laying down connections and, and, and structures within the brain, that occurs after we're out of the womb. 
in the world, being influenced, influencing others, interacting. So one could say, and, and my colleagues, uh, the anthropologist Greg Downey and Dan Lendy have said this wonderfully in their book, Neuroanthropology, um, culture is real, right? Our experiences, the way in which we are in the world become our neuroanatomy, become our neurons and our hormones and the way they react in the world. So that's the first thing, right? To understand that there's no such thing as it being all in your head, right? Um, for humans, everything is in our head and outside our head and our head is always connected to multiple other heads. So I know that sounds a little complicated, but just think of the brain as part of a system that functions to bring the outside world literally into the body and then push out our thoughts, our minds, our imaginations, our ideas back into the outside world and onto other bodies. That's, that's the neuroanatomy of humans. And that's what we have to understand when we think about belief. And so when we think of belief, would it be fair to say that, that no belief happens as an individual process? Right. No, belief are always about this interaction with others. And beliefs sort of structure. So you grew up believing a particular thing. So as a child, you grew up in a particular community. That community has beliefs, belief systems, ideologies. On average, sort of you incorporate those and they become your reality. And so as you mature, as you grow up, these actually shape the way your eyes, ears, and hands work, right? When you believe something, when you know something to be true in the world, you can look and see something will see it through that filter or you will get information through that filter. I think that's incredibly important for people to understand. If someone believes something, right, and belief isn't everything, right? Not everything we think or feel is about belief. But when someone believes something, that is their reality. And we need to understand that because it is a biological process, not just this psychological thing. We've been talking about the capacity to believe and the ability to believe and, and how those processes actually take place. But I wanted to ask you about the content of belief. Uh, you write mm -hmm. about religion, which obviously comes to mind when one thinks about belief, um, one of the largest manifestations of a sort of collective belief in something. And yet you write, in, in relating this to the, the history you've been tracing in this hour, that in human terms, religion is actually very recent. Where do we situate religion in, in the course of human history? So I think this is really important. And this is a, a challenging thing, I think, for a lot of people. So religion, as we think of it today, right? Let's talk about global religions or structured, you know, ritual faith-based practices, the Judeo-Christian religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, a variety of animistic traditions found throughout the world. Um, those are all very recent. And humans, as we've already said, are very old. So, so that gives us a problem only if you think that religion itself is what is really interesting about humans. I would argue it's a human capacity to be religious that evolves early on and facilitates the appearance of religions just like it facilitated the appearance of nation states and economies and things like that. So to be religious, I'm arguing, and belief is of course central here, that humans have the ability, right, to look around the world, to see it, feel it, and, and taste it as it is, but then to imagine and to sense and to feel that there's more than just the material. And I think that's very deep in human history, and we've got pretty good evidence that humans uh, believe that there's more than the here and now. And all humans today have this capacity for belief, and all humans today believe that there's more than the here and now, whether they admit it or not. So once you have this capacity to, for, the, for, you could say, the transcendent, right, for more than just what we can touch, feel, and hear, you can see that opens the door for the development of different kinds of faith practices and traditions that can become codified as And the final thing I want to say is that if you look at the history, right, the archaeology, both the written word and the material remains of contemporary religions, none of them go back more than six to 8,000 years at most. And so that's very recent. So the roots of religiousness are deep, but contemporary religions, the structures that we see today are very recent. Well, how do we understand that aspect of transcendence that you mentioned? Because obviously there are people who have some notion of transcendence that isn't necessarily tied to religion. And you write that there's tantalizing evidence that other primates 
uh, have yeah. some ability to appreciate the transcendent, to be awed by visual beauty, for example. Yes, absolutely. So I want to be very, very clear here, and I want to acknowledge the wonderful work of my colleague, uh, Barbara King, uh, in, in this area. So many other organisms, and here I would nod to the primates, I think cetaceans, I think a number of highly social mammals, and particularly probably a lot of birds, have this ability to appreciate sort of this incredible more than the material, this sort of sense that we get looking at a wonderful sub sunset or, or hearing a wonderful sort of song. Uh, you can see this in other organisms. For humans, however, I think this is not just an individual experience. It can become a communal experience and can become central in the way we define ourselves and create our own lives. So for humans, this transcendent experience, this more than the material, more than the here and now, actually becomes central in how we explain the world. Uh, and, and the evidence for that is pretty old. We see early evidence of things we might call art, um, of, of etchings, of carvings, of images, uh, obviously translating imaginaries into material realities. So when humans can look at the world around them, see how it is, but then imagine wholly new possibilities that don't exist and try to make them happen, that then becomes this central difference between humans and other organisms. So other organisms, I think, can, can have these experiences, but humans have taken them and made them a central part of the way in which we exist and are successful in the world. It brought to my mind the question of how, given that we have this capacity for the transcendent, how that affects our notion of future possibilities. Because as you write about belief, many of the examples reinforce a sense that whatever takes place in the world, often things that are quite negative, like social inequality, that those things can be justified by belief systems. And um, religion couldn't play a part of it sometimes as well. And yet it also sounds like you're saying, or if one were to sort of extend this further out, that it also points to our capacity to think of different political or social possibilities about the future to try and make the world perhaps more, even more unequal or even the other way, more just and more equal. You're absolutely right. Let me again say right up front here that the capacity for belief has led to some of the worst, most horrific things that humans do, the most sort of incredible direct and structural violences, the inequalities and religions and politics and nations uh, and societies are implicated in this. But at the same time, and this is what I think is hopeful about this, at the same time, we can look back to two million years of human evolution, look at the last few hundred thousand years, look at the last 10,000 years, and we can see this incredible capacity for humans to hope and dream and strive for justice, this, even though all odds are against it, even though it doesn't look like there's any way in which these things could work, and yet again and again and again, humans have been able to make these imaginings, the, these, these hopes and dreams, these beliefs, reality. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Now, I'm not saying that, this, that the future is all hopeful, right? I am terrified right now uh, of the state the world is in. Sure. But the capacity for belief does have a history, at least, of showing us the possibility of creating a better world. And, and I think that possibility is out there. But I am, I am quite cautious in, in talking too much about that, about that because I don't want to detract from the ways in which belief and belief systems have caused such horrendous damage to the human experience uh, in, in the contemporary world. Evolutionary anthropologist Agustin Fuentes is my guest. We're talking about his book, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. That's published by Yale University Press. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let's talk about economics. Um, you devote a fair amount of attention in the book to economics. And I wonder if you can draw out how belief helps us understand wealth inequality and, and the maintenance of wealth inequality today. Well, I think this is really important. And, and my economics colleagues, uh, uh, many of them actually agree with me once they actually listen to the whole thing, but they bristle at first. Um, let me just say this. Economies are made up right? <laughs> we believed them into being. There's nothing natural about barter or capitalism or socialism or a variety of other different kinds of economic systems out there. 
Um, they are created by humans and maintained by humans, right? Uh, for anyone who doubts that, everyone, you know, if you happen to have a $20 or a $5 or a $1 bill, hold that up and take a look at it. That's a green piece of paper here in the US uh, that is completely and utterly worthless if we didn't all believe in it, and we do. And I think that's really important. But let's back up and go back to what I had said earlier. So early on, when there's not a lot of material inequality in, in human history, uh, you don't get estimates because you don't have materials to exchange for one another. Uh, you have different kinds of social negotiations and connections. But as we ramp up the amount of materials, the different kinds of roles in societies, and the complexity of those materials, as we ramp up the density of humans and the different ways in which humans interact, we start to develop economies, uh, not just of scale, but of belief, right? The way in which we value items over one another or value even people over one another. Um, and so these belief systems, these economies, emerge over time, but they are only maintained because people believe in them through repeated sort of structuring and use. Um, uh, I think it's just really important to, to recognize that. There are a lot of economists who would argue that sort of this kind of free market exchange, this sort of uh, open market where in free and uh, unfettered competition, the best always rise to the top, this kind of analogy. They say this is natural selection. This is what we see in the evolutionary landscape of the world. That's simply not true. The world does not function on the capitalist system. There's just enormous amounts of evidence that refute that assertion. But if people believe that, then it's much easier to maintain this kind of capitalist infrastructure. So, so I think it's really important to, to step back and say the world doesn't mandate a particular kind of economy, but humans do mandate economies. We now live, where there's no going back, in kinds of complex economies, every human society does, uh, where there is inequality built into it. We're not going back to a time where there's not material inequality. That's here to stay. But how we manage that inequality, now that's really an open question. Well, let me ask you about something that people often think is natural, maybe even more natural than economic systems, which is love and our capacity for love. What is the relationship of belief to that capacity for deep attachment to one another? And to what degree is that attachment something basic, intrinsic, and natural? And to what degree is it socially created? Well, I, I think one thing, and I sort of nodded to this earlier, um, for humans, this ability to bond with others, and not just other humans, right, <laughs> to even bond with other species, uh, it, it's deep and powerful. So one, one major aspect of the human niche, one of major ways we've been successful in the world is a physiological, our bodies are primed to bond, to connect, collaborate, to coordinate. And so that is a really, really, really strong pattern in humans. Um, however, uh, when we get to love, it's much more complicated because no one can really agree on what that is. And there's a whole bunch of different ways in which people identify it. Um, we can say of the love between a mother uh, and, and a child, we can say love between family members, a love between community members. We can say love between individuals and their pets. We can say a love of God for a very, very uh, religious individual. What we're really talking about then is this baseline capacity for humans to biologically and psychologically commit to others in incredibly strong ways. And then we believe different things about those ways and how they pan out. So love itself is a multifaceted uh, capacity of humans. Um, and what we believe about it says a lot about how it plays out. Um, and that can be very good, I think, in many ways, and very hopeful, but it can also be very, very challenging. So, for example, in the United States, there's been this long sort of notion that, that there's this one Mr. Right or Mrs. Right out there for, for everyone. Uh, that's, that's problematic because that may not be true. And there may be multiple individuals or no one uh, for for, for these kinds of connections. And I think we have to be careful because belief systems construct the way we think the world should be. And what we believe about love can really harm or help our psychological states as we move through life. Well, let me ask you about the state of belief in the 21st century. You've mentioned that we live in a highly unequal world, 
religiosity, which you mentioned is quite recent, is incredibly widespread. So even though inequality and religiosity are in human terms and the long trajectory of human history relatively recent, these are things that have enormous weight and tension around them in our society. How do you make sense of belief today, given all of those different factors? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's really complicated now because the way belief is constructed, remember I said right at the start here that it's it's our sort of our, our development, our life experiences, what we get from the world around us, our imagination, and how we sort of put all of that together. Well, now we get more information, more pressure, more structure than ever before. Um, so you can see that beliefs are getting pushed on from all over the place in some cases, but in other cases, uh, we're separating ourselves into these little small social media bubbles so that our beliefs are never pushed on and, and just allowed to be reinforced. Um, and, and that can be problematic because remember, what someone believes is real for them. In this contemporary landscape, then belief can be abused, shaped to lead to conflict, to reinforce these notions of inequality. Uh, and I would say that, that that's going on right now. Now, my hopeful uh, answer to that is that if we look at what are some of the strongest belief systems, right, and those are the diverse sort of religions that we have out there, they are also, and very important, this notion of science and scientific enterprise and the idea of trying to discover scientifically how the world works. Um, I would argue that if those two trajectories, right, the sort of faith-based sort of ideologies of hope and compassion and connection and the sort of science-based sort of trying to discover the material functioning of the world, if those were in better dialogue with one another, I think we would be in a much better space. Well, let me ask you more about that. You write when you consider in your book why we believe, belief now, belief today, that you actually point to not science but scientism as a problematic manifestation of belief. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by scientism and tell us why you think that uh, we should be a little careful counterposing science to belief. Yeah, I think that's really important. So let me just say at the outset here, um, fundamentalism, right, which is a particular kind of restrictive belief system. Fundamentalism uh, mandates that there's only one specific way to be in the world and that all other ways are wrong. That That's anti-belief, right? Fundamentalism constrains the human capacity for imagination and belief and is damaging. So all fundamentalism, I'm going to argue, is bad. Um, and I think there's good biological and social historical rationales for that. On the other hand, let me say I am a scientist, and that's my favorite belief system. That's my favorite practice. That's my favorite way of asking questions around the world. So I'm, I'm doubly upset, you could say, by scientism, which is this kind of fundamentalist notion that's not about the practice of science, but rather saying that whatever scientists say or this big notion of science as a way of being is better than every other way of trying to understand the world. This idea that whatever science says or whatever I interpret science to say is right and you religious people are nuts or you, you know, uh, political people are nuts, science will guide us and show us the light. That's really dangerous. It's a kind of fundamentalism and it actually detracts from the benefits science can do in dialogue with these other ways of knowing. And is part of the problem here that it puts belief on one side and science on the other when in fact, scientists operate in a world of beliefs themselves. Right, yes, yeah. scientists are human. All humans believe. We're all biased in multiple ways. And if you don't recognize that as a scientist, if you don't recognize that you're biased and that bias might be influencing the way in which you do science and interpret data, wow, you're not a very good scientist. So, so that's what I'm arguing against because in the recent times, being a scientist, it's, it's pained me to see uh, some of my colleagues, especially prominent ones, lambasting religious individuals as idiots or you know, saying that science of something is gonna tell you how to best run a society. Th those things simply aren't true and those aren't based on actual scientific endeavors. They're based on biases and opinions and, and that's scientism. Um, so if we could understand that there are multiple ways of knowing, science tells us some things, other ways tell us other things, the two don't always connect, but they can connect in particularly important ways, I think we might be in a much better uh, position to challenge some of the real significant problems. Climate change. Climate change is not going to go away, and it's not, the people who don't want to act on it are not gonna be convinced 
by putting more data, right? We already have all the data. It's absolutely clear. There's no more data we can offer. Um, what we can offer, though, is to appeal to different patterns and processes in the development of belief to get people to believe this broader picture of understanding about climate change. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and climate change is the perfect example of where sort of faith traditions and scientists need to get together with politicians, economists, and, and, and sort of a wide range of humanitarians to, to make a difference in the world. Well, let me end by asking you this. In other writings of yours, you've cautioned that we should be very careful about using human evolution as an explanation for why we act the ways that we do today. Do you think that there are any perils in looking at human evolution and belief and making conclusions about belief today? No, I don't, but I do think there are perils in misrepresenting what we can and do know about human evolution and then using that to push a particular agenda. That's really dangerous. So understanding human evolution is critical. Everyone should understand the patterns and processes of human evolution because that's our history. We need to understand our bodies, our histories, our societies. But human evolution doesn't give us all the answers. It only gives us certain kinds of answers about certain kinds of things. And so what we see in today is a lot of people misrepresenting human evolution. And they've been doing this since Darwin and Wallace proposed uh, natural selection as a process of evolution. Humans are biased and interpretive, imaginatory, uh, believing animals. Um, and what we have to do is be very, very careful that if we're talking about the science of human evolution, that we stick to the science and be very clear when we're saying, here's what the science suggests and here's how we might think about it, but it does not replace many, many, many other modes and important contexts of explaining who we are and why we do what we do. Agustin Fuentes, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sasha. I always enjoy it. Agustin Fuentes is the author of Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being, published by Yale University Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, and his other books include Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.